show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, November 26, 2012, and this is episode 1027 of the Survival Podcast as we come back from our break over Thanksgiving. Hope a lot of you guys got to hear the show that we played on uh, Friday, uh, Black Friday, uh, on building resiliency in our children. It was not about going out and buying them cheap Chinese crap and stepping on your neighbor's neck to get a good deal on it. It was about teaching them how to solve their own problems. If you didn't listen to that one because you're on vacation and you skipped it, I would go back and listen to it. It was a pretty dead gone good show. Uh, I do have some special announcements that are kind of sort of in the uh, intro segment today, so if you usually skip that, you may not want to do that today. Let's start out, though, as always, with taking care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. You got a gun? You got no ammo? You got an expensive club or something you can uh, pawn or sell or barter? You do not have a gun. A gun without ammo is completely and totally useless other than something to beat somebody with or to sell or to maybe look cool with. Uh, guns need ammo, and operators need ammo to become better operators of their firearms. So you need lots of ammo, not just to store up for the apocalypse, but to get out and run that gun and run it often and become very proficient with it. To do that, go to BulkAmmo.com and get all the common calibers at great pricing with lightning-fast shipping. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. You know, they've been with us since, uh, well, since before anybody else was, uh, almost four years now. They've been providing their lifetime discount club to MSB members for almost that long as well. Uh, that's a $50 value, $49, so it makes your first year of MSB a buck. Uh, that alone is a huge benefit, and they have everything you can think of for your prepping needs. Check them out today. Easiest way to remember their website is actually prepared.pro, like professional people that prepare, prepared.pro. Check them out today, Safe Castle Royal. And while you're there, check out their sister site. If you need a hardened shelter, especially if you live in Tornado Alley, they build some of the best in the world. Again, you can find all of it at prepared.pro. Best way to find bulk ammo, Safe Castle, and all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com. First, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Uh, next, I want to remind you, TSP Gear and TSP Copper are two sites that we're running in conjunction uh, with the show. And you can get copper at one, TSP Copper, and gear at the other, TSP Gear. Uh, check them out today. There will be links in the show notes. Uh, next up, here's kind of a big announcement. You know, the MSB is a great value. It really is. It's 50 bucks a year, uh, significantly less if you're military or law enforcement. And uh, it allows you to get discounts. It helps support the show. It gives you additional content. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks the day that you join. And uh, a lot of you guys have been members, and that's what's made me able to do the Survival Podcast full time. What I'm doing right now, and I'll probably do this today and tomorrow, and I'm probably going to shut it down after that. I made the announcement on the blog last week. This will be the first time it's on the show. So I'll probably run it a couple more days. But I am getting to a point where enough people have done it that I'm going to cut it off is I'm running a program right now where you can become a lifetime member of the Member Support Brigade. Uh, it's 300 bucks. Effectively, you're paying for six years in advance, but you get it for the rest of your life. We're doing it to raise some cash because we're about to close on a new home, and this was not originally planned as part of the long-term plan. And basically what we're doing is we're sacrificing some future revenue for some current revenue, and allowing a limited number of people to become lifetime members. I'm not sure where we're going to cap it, but we're getting close to where I'm going to say that's that's enough of that. 
because it does detract from future revenue. That's the way that it works. Uh, one or two people were irritated on the blog that we're doing this. I don't understand it. I don't really have anything to say to anybody that's irritated about it. I don't get it. It's a product that we sell every day. Uh, people are not compelled to buy it. You buy it if you think it works for you. We don't take charity around here. We don't take donations around here. I've had people try to say, let me send you more because they know why we're doing this. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. We exchange value for value here. You don't want to join the MSP. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I appreciate everybody that listens to the show and shares it with other people. This is just something that we're making available to people right now. Um, because frankly, there's been some interest in it. I've had a lot of people ask about it in the past, and the response has been pretty daggone good. And it's no different than something like the NRA, who charges you twice as much to be a lifetime member and then constantly asks you for more money. I'm going to give you a lifetime membership, but not constantly ask you for more money. The NRA that gives you discounts that don't really actually get you a discount, where my discounts actually get you a discount. So, I don't know if you don't have a problem with the NRA having a lifetime program. I, I, I don't get it. Uh, those of you that would like to be a lifetime member, I appreciate you. And I will tell you, I can't tell you what it is because I don't want people doing it just to get it. But there's a little tiny special thing that you get when you become a lifetime member. It's not a monetary thing. It's not something that other, you know, like it's not in the members brigade. It's when you get your email from me to thank you for your payment. You get a little extra something from me that may or may not really mean something, but... Uh, I've also had people say, of course you're not going to limit it. No, I'm going to limit it. I don't, again, know why some people are angry that I would make this available. Um, I don't want everybody to become a lifetime member because then that really does impact the future cash flow of the show. So this is a limited program uh, to bring some capital in at the end of the year and take care of some things that we need to do. All right, so hopefully you guys like that. I want to get into the main topic of today's show now. Of course, since it's Monday This is all uh, feedback to uh, to me sent to me at Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com with article for Jack, question for Jack, feedback for Jack, etc. Uh, what I'm going to start off with is something a lot of people seem really really scared about right now, and I'm not going to say who sent me the email because I've been getting a lot of emails about it because all of the All of the think tanks and all of the anti-Obama people and all of the anti-government people and all, and justifiably so, are in a lather over the re-election and everything and the world's going to end now and you know, you know me, how this might sound. I'm not defending Barack Obama. I'm not defending Republicans. I'm not defending Democrats. I pretty much despise them all equally. I think there's about 1% of people in government that I would trust to walk my dog, let alone with my nation if it was up to me. I'm just saying that when things don't go the way one side wants, they get upset and then they try to say the other side is going to destroy the world. And if Mitt Romney had run, you would be one, you would hear the same thing coming from the left. And the big concern right now is the mythical, and it is a mythical fiscal cliff. And I've been getting a lot of people asking me, because of the way this, this is being reported, exactly what is the fiscal cliff, Jack? So let me give you the no-nonsense, nuts and bolts, no bullshit answer to what the fiscal cliff is. Let me explain the way that the Democrats have the Republicans, even with a large majority in the House, totally up against the wall here. Let me give you the solution that they're going to give you eventually, and let me tell you why it all doesn't matter. Okay, the fiscal cliff is the fact that George Bush put some tax cuts into effect that are due to expire in January. So everybody's taxes go up in January. And for middle-income people, it's a significant rise in, in taxes. A family with an income of, uh, let's say, $100,000 to $150,000 
uh, which is it sounds like a lot to some people, but trust me, for the people that are making that money, where they're living, the way they're living, um, it, a lot of them with a couple kids are just getting by because they're living in a place where taxes, uh, property taxes, housing, etc., eat up that income. There's a trade-off always with income. Those people could see their taxes go up by as much as six to nine thousand dollars or more uh, when the Bush tax cuts expire. So much for no tax increases for the middle, you know, the middle class and people that are making fifty thousand a year. Uh, you probably will see a, a fairly significant tax increase as well because the tax increases, ex the tax cuts expire for everybody. From the person that pays a dollar right now to the person that pays a million dollars right now, rich and poor alike. That's one component of the supposed fiscal cliff. The government will get more money. That's part of the that's part of the fiscal cliff. Okay. Um, yes, can that slow down employment and recovery and all? Yes, but in the net immediate consequences, the fiscal cliff is the government gets more money next year. Okay. Uh, number two on the fiscal cliff is when they had a debt ceiling debate uh, a while ago, the Republicans said, we're going to cut stuff. And the uh, Democrats said, no. And the Republicans said, yes. And they came to a, an agreement that they could either find stuff to cut together in the future or they could just cut everything across the board. So the other part of the fiscal cliff is that the government's going to spend less money. The government's going to take in more revenue and spend less. That's part of the fiscal cliff. Another component is that President Obama cut, let's be fair, President Obama, without a plan to figure out how to make up the difference, cut the payroll taxes. That's your Social Security taxes by two points. So that's coming back. So that's a tax that's going to go up for everybody. So again, government gets more money. So, and the third terrible thing that would happen is that it would reduce the government's deficit by about $500 billion. So we'll cut the deficit if the fiscal cliff hits us by half a billion dollars. So the fiscal cliff is the government cutting spending and increasing taxes. Hmm. Uh, I'm never for tax increases, but that doesn't sound like a real fiscal cliff to me. It really doesn't. Um, will this have a negative impact on business and business growth? Perhaps, but probably not as bad as the, the dire predictions are. And will this thing actually occur? No, it won't, because here's what's going to happen. Remember, I promised I would explain to you how the Democrats have the Republicans right up against the wall with this. Um, they, if you want to get something done, you need the House and the Senate. But if you want to prevent something from happening... You don't need anybody except for one side to not agree with the other. If you can control one house, the House versus the Senate, then you can easily not stop something from happening. So if we were debating whether or not to give a tax cut and the Republicans wanted to do certain things and the Democrats wanted to do certain things, then they could just come together and, and compromise, and they would have to because to do something, you would need both sides, right? Well, that's not the case here. We're not trying to get something done. We're trying to prevent something from happening that is going to happen anyway. You know, if we do nothing, it will occur. So the Democrats can sit back and say, look, we don't want to cut, keep tax cuts in place for millionaires. Regardless of whether that's the truth or not, that's going to be what they'll say. The Republicans will say, we will not vote for a tax increase. And the Democrats can say, fine, we're not going to continue to give a tax cut to the wealthy. 
And the Republicans, it, it just, it's just a stalemate. So what happens is January comes along, the fiscal cliff hits. What happens then is the Bush tax cuts expire for everybody. If they really don't want to raise taxes for the middle class, all the Democrats then have to do is put together a new tax cut that says we want to cut taxes for all the people making less than $150,000 a year or whatever it is um, back to where they were under the Bush tax cuts for the middle class to make it a permanent tax cut and hand it to the Republicans and say we're now proposing a tax cut. If you vote against it, well then you're voting against the tax cut, which all of you Tea Party Republicans, public, you know, you guys promised not to vote for a tax increase, and now you've done that, but you also promised to always vote for tax cuts. So here you go. And then the Democrats have the Republicans up against the wall, which means if either side actually wants to make sure that the middle classes don't have their taxes go up, everybody has an out and everybody can get it done, which means if it doesn't happen... And it probably won't. Neither of them actually want to cut your taxes. Plain and simple. Um, that's all there is to it. So there is a way. And once it happens, no, because they can easily put legislation on the floor in January after the first session that makes the tax cuts for the middle class retroactive for the entire 2013 fiscal year. It's that simple, it ain't hard, it ain't complicated, and if the Democrats had any brains, what they would be doing right now is they would already have put legislation out to the Republicans that ignored the tax cut, that ignored the budget, just, just didn't even bring it up, didn't mention it, and say, this is where we're going to be in January, we would like to create a new piece of legislation that creates a permanent tax cut for the middle class, we're going to let these things expire, It's not a tax, and it's to be fair to the Democrats, it's not a tax increase. It's the expiration of a temporary cut, which is how it was negotiated. If they wanted it to be permanent, they should have put it in there as permanent. But there is no fiscal cliff. The, the fiscal cliff is a myth being used to scare you, drive the market down, so once again the predators can go in and buy shit at a discount and make the upside as you get a stair-step drop and a stair-step rebound of the market, because it ain't going to be the end of all things if this thing happens. It ain't a cliff. It's a dip in the road. And it's a dip in the road being used to, 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 you know, to bully puppet crap, to blame each other, to continue to divide, and to biggest thing of all, to further entrench the false dichotomy that makes you think it's either the D or the R that has your back when both of them are behind you, but they ain't got your back, Jack. They're doing something else behind you, I can't say. All right? That's the truth. The fiscal cliff is just another piece. I want to lead right into another thing I've been getting a ton about. I want to go ahead and uh, I want to play something for you. This is uh, Timothy Geithner on the debt ceiling and why they should just eliminate it. And then I'm going to come back and tell you something. You're probably going to have your jaw hit the floor when you first hear me say it. Please do me a favor and listen to the following couple minutes that come after that. But listen to this. This is Geithner on the debt ceiling. You agree with Alan Greenspan we ought to just eliminate the debt ceiling? Oh, absolutely. You do. Will, he, will you propose that? Well, you know, this is only something only Congress can solve. Congress right. put it on itself. We've had a hundred years of experience with it. And I think only once last summer uh, did people decide to use it to threaten default on the American credit for the first time in history as a tool for political advantage. And 
that's not a that's not a tenable strategy. Is now the time to eliminate it? Oh, it would've been time a long time ago to eliminate it. The sooner the better. <laughs> now people are going crazy over this, right? Um, you've got the Secretary of the Treasury saying we should just have no limit on debt in the United States at all. We should just eliminate the debt ceiling and let the The Fed spent as much money as they want. The former uh, head of the uh, the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, says this is a good idea. The current head, Ben, ben Bernanke, thinks this, everybody says it. And people are going, oh, my God, Jack, look what they're going to do with the debt. They're just going to let it go to infinity. Do you know why? And here's the part where you're going to have your jaw hit the floor. You, you know why Timothy Geithner is right, why they should lift the debt ceiling? Because, it, oh, my God, Jack said that. Here's the reason why, though. Because it's time for the people of this country to stop believing in fairy tales. And the debt ceiling limit is a fairy tale. And I'll tell you why. If you said we're not going to borrow any more money, the debt's still going to go up. The debt's still going to go up. By about a, the, the interest on the debt now is about a half a trillion dollars a year. So let's go into a complete imaginary fairy tale world. And let's say that the U.S. government decides it will stop spending 100% of its money. It won't spend another dime, period, on anything. It will get rid of every department of government, every government oversight committee. The federal government will literally dissolve and just sit there as a shell corporation, like a corporation in total bankruptcy. The cost to run... The now non-existent federal government is about a half a trillion dollars, a half a trillion dollars in interest payments to account for the existing debt. And how much tax revenue would they have? Well, they would have none. How many of you would pay your taxes if the government did absolutely nothing? Absolutely nothing at all. Period. There was no federal government whatsoever, and that included the people in the federal government that would actually like make you pay. Right, So there would be no taxes. So the only source of the half trillion dollars to pay the interest would be to borrow more money to pay the interest. Which would get, You see how this works? We're in a system of mathematical uh, inevitability of the debt always going up. So if the system is going to increase the debt in even a ridiculous, absurd situation, okay, then how in any God-given way can we actually think the debt ceiling means anything? Do you know what would happen if Congress held its breath and didn't raise the debt ceiling? The Federal Reserve is an independent government, uh, independent agency, independent from government, would take action and increase the debt independently. It's a fairy tale. Now look, when you're a little kid, and people tell you about the old lady that lived in a shoe, the spider that talked to little Miss Muffet, and the big bad wolf that went in the bed and dressed up like grandma. It's entertaining, and a little part of you when you're a little kid might even believe in that. When you get older, you realize there's things we can learn from this, like old parables and lessons in life, and it's kind of entertaining and fun and creative. But you know that no wolf ever put on grandma's clothes. You know no old lady ever lived in a shoe. You know no spider ever talked to little Miss Muffet. You know, little Bo Peep never had any sheep. You know, it's all made up. If you think that the debt ceiling means anything, it's time for you to stop believing in fairy tales. It's time for you to realize that the whole thing is a scam. There is no way the debt ceiling will ever not be raised. The last time they did this, okay... The last time they did this, Uncle Jack told you, and people were writing me, and I'm, and I'm in the military, I'm afraid I'm not going to get paid. Old people were telling me they weren't. I'm like, just don't worry about it, they're going to do it. 
And they did. And then here's the one defense people would make now. But see, they've required spending cuts. There's no spending cuts. There's no spending cuts coming. The fiscal cliff is also a fairy tale. Do you know what a cut in government is? I have a Department of Government that's eating up $200 billion a year. I'm planning to grow it to $220 billion a year next year, a $20 billion increase. Now I'm only going to grow it to $215 billion. I've now done a 25% cut on the growth in spending, and that's what we've cut it by 25%. We've gone from $200 <laughs> to $215 billion, and we've supposedly cut it. There's no cuts coming. There is no significant cuts coming. There is no way in hell under the current system that the debt ceiling is going to fail to be raised every single time that it needs to be raised. There is no way that you're ever going to go more than a year without needing to do it again. The whole thing is a fairy tale. The whole thing is a fabrication. The whole thing is a lie. And as long as you believe it, you're allowing the system to control your life. And you're wasting your time worried about your circle of concern versus your circle of influence. Under the current system, there is nothing you or the Congress, or the Senate, or the President can do about the national debt. Not one damn thing. Every corresponding cut is going to come along with another corresponding offsetting increase. The, the interest on the debt is now in a runaway cycle, where it will continue to go up by 50% over and over and over again in a compounding cycle way. You know when the people tell you about your retirement and they show you how you know you just put in $100 a month and it doesn't look like a lot, it doesn't look like a lot, it doesn't look like a lot, and all of a sudden like when you're like 55, if you've never stopped putting money in, it starts to really run away and you become really, really rich by the time you're like 68, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster as it compounds at the end. That's what's happening with the interest on the debt. We're at that point with it. There's, there's no way out of this. The only thing that could be done is changing the system. That's it. There's n the current system has no debt ceiling. I, I know you think it does, because the TV tells you it does. There is no such thing as a debt ceiling. It doesn't exist. There's nothing, nothing Congress can do in the current system. If Ben Bernanke says, you know what, Congress has failed to act, the Federal Reserve as an independent agency will continue to buy United States debt and continue to increase the debt, And we're going to do this because we have to, and we will not default on a debt, and our job is to prevent that from happening. There's no way in hell that wouldn't happen, and there's no way in hell Congress is going to let that happen, and they're always going to raise the debt ceiling, and there's nothing that can be done about it other than a bunch of bullshit and distraction. There's where you're at. Now, if Congress and the Senate and the President actually looked at this and really wanted to fix this problem, you have to change the system. You have to change the system whereby the United States of America issues and manages its currency. The Federal Reserve can't go away overnight because of the way it's been in, in implemented. It has to be phased out of existence, and we have to go into a free monetary system. That is the only way. It can be gold. It can be commodity. It can be some sort of actually responsibly run. Well, I don't trust the government to do it. It doesn't mean it's impossible. There is a way to run a fiat money system responsibly. There absolutely is, because the value of your money does not come from what's behind it. It comes from what's in front of it. I'm not going to go deeper into that today, or the whole show will be about economics. Just understand this. 
under the current system, everything they tell you is a lie, which means the current system eventually must hit a runaway portion where it will fail. They are then going to change the system, and they will not have your interest at heart when they do it. And people ask me why I'm so sure that eventually we're going to rebase the currency, because mathematics tell us it's the only choice. So is Geithner right? He's not right with the reasoning he gives you. He's right because he damn well knows there is no such thing as a debt ceiling. He knows there is no debt ceiling in reality. None. It's a fairy tale. Please stop looking for the big bad wolf sleeping in your grandmother's bed, folks. It's a fairy tale. Let's take another one. Here's an interesting question that kind of dovetails into the economic thing here. What do you think of looking at the economy from a production standpoint versus employment? For example, the invention of the tractor put a lot of farmers out of business, but they found other things to do and also increased production. From a pure employment viewpoint, the tractor could have been seen as a bad thing. We went from a large population of farmers to a small one. I just get frustrated hearing people worry about jobs all the time, and they never talk about the value of jobs. Thanks, Jack. Hope you and your family had a great Thanksgiving. Well, here's the thing. The farmer that was smart and saw the writing on the wall and was an early tractor adopter actually did very well with that transition. It was the farmer that said, all oh, these tractors are stupid. I don't trust technology and kept using his plow horse and found himself unable to keep up with those who embraced and utilized new technology. Now, we all know that many negative consequences of that new technology have occurred, but there's some positive ones as well. And the tractor probably isn't the uh, thing that I would use to explain this, but we look at the automobile. Okay, If we look at the automobile from this standpoint, if you were a milkman before the automobile, you had some pretty damn good job security. People couldn't just jump in the car and run to town. They had these big trailers that towed milk around, and all the people that didn't have a cow relied on the milkman. So you would have thought the milkman went away. Well, the milkman became much more productive once the automobile came. It actually took many decades for weekly shopping and the ability to get your own milk to fully kill off the milkman, even though the automobile started the process. And there was this long time where people made a lot of money running milk companies that did delivery. I remember all the way in the 70s, people storing record albums, right, in stolen milk crates. There's irony there. As two things were being used to house each other, and both were about to become obsoleted. The record album, somewhat by the cassette tape, but definitely in the, in the late 80s by the CD, and the milk crate with simply people going, the nostalgia is no longer enough for me to buy the milk from the milkman anymore. Right? So, but the, the smart company that was in the milk delivery business didn't see the automobile as a problem. They saw it as a way to deliver more milk to more people over greater range, use the power of the motor to provide refrigeration, and drastically increase capabilities. So there was this transitional period where the people in that industry did really well, and if they looked for something to do next or a different part of the market to serve and then go to delivering milk to the store – as refrigerated took in versus to the individual, they actually were able to grow their business. This is how we have to look at things that come along with new technologies. Instead of going, well, they, they threaten our, our business. And this is the biggest thing I think people can do. Um, you have to stop thinking like an employee, at least on some level, even if you're going to be employed, even if you never want a business for yourself, 
Um, and it might more and more be the case as the economy fluctuates that it's going to be more and more necessary for a lot of people to become entrepreneurial and step out to their own business. But there will always be a place for employees. But you have to stop thinking about it as your job and start thinking about it as your business. This is probably the most important economic survival tip I can give anybody in the clump coming just nightmare economy. It's just you have to think of your job as your business, not as your job. And what I mean by that is a person might work in a machine shop and they might work on a metal, metal lathe. And they think of their job as I am a lathe operator. You are not a lathe operator. Your business is material fabrication. And anything, I don't care if you have to go to injection molding, I, you are in the material fabrication industry And you need to expand your mindset, your skill set, your knowledge, every bit of it, every day in that business. You need to be meeting people that are in different parts of that industry. You need to be forming relationships. You need to be, I mean, you need to be marketable as someone that is a, a, a person in the material fabrication industry. You are not a lathe operator. Because if you're a lathe operator, then you're place that you look for to do something, whether it's entrepreneurial or as an employee for somebody else, is only in operating lathes. And you can take a million different things from the auto industry, the manufacturing industry, the shipping industry, just like that, where people out there with a resume right now that says, I operate lathes. You know? That's, that's, that's bad, because if you've lost a job doing that, then lots of other people have lost a job doing that, too, But there's always a need for somebody that can make stuff. Even, even with the Chinese doing it for 13 cents an hour, I don't care. There's always a place for it. And I think that when you look at this question from Byron, not, he didn't really go there, but that's really the point. That you have to expand your, your belief system from I have a job to I have a business, even if you're employed. Because here's the, here's the secret, guys. Every person out there is an independent contractor. We just work under different conditions. Some of us work truly independently like I do and have nobody to answer to at all except customers. All right. Some people work in the true independent contractor uh, concept where they have a company or a group of select customers that they work for and they bill based on a certain thing. And some of those come with some benefits and some don't. And some are in an employer-employee relationship where that contract, which is what it is, comes with specific benefits and specific requirements and all. But it's all based on the fact that you bring value And if the, if the, if the client, which is your employer, or if you have a job, your employer decides that the value you're bringing is not sufficient to be worth the cost that you, uh, you, you incur upon them, then they will terminate your contract. And you'll have to go contract with somebody else. And people think that's not true when you get a real job with real bed. No, it's completely true. I don't care if you're in a union. They'll, they'll send your ass packing quick. They'll close. You know, look at the Twinkie. The Twinkie's gone. All right? This is why we have to start thinking. Yeah, I'm in the food services business. I'm in the material fabrication business. Right? I'm in the product delivery business. Well, what do you do? And this is not about making yourself feel good. This is not about being a janitor and saying, I am a custodial engineer. Right? You take garbage out. Right, But, okay, fine, you know what? There's a lot of money to be made in waste disposal. If you can figure out how to either go up the employment chain or segue into the self-employed realm. 
And this is going to be, you know, people think survival skills are all about starting fires and, and, and shooting things and gutting deer or whatever. And there's a place for all that. Of course there is. But the biggest thing that's going to punch people in the face in the next 20 years is going to be the economy and an inability to adapt to this new reality. This reality is already here, and people just don't know it yet. And the more they know it, the more scared they're going to become. And the more they'll compromise, and the worse it's going to get. At the same time, the person that will expand their mind into a production mentality, a I am in the business of mentality, that will just simply say, if my sector changes, I'll change with it. Right? I mean, those people will not only survive, but likely will find ways to thrive in all but the Armageddon scenario. And the Armageddon scenario is nowhere near as likely as a lot of people in this industry would like you to believe. There's ways it can occur, but the reality is that society is a remarkably resilient thing in of itself. And sooner or later, people put things back together. It's what we do. And there's always a place for people that bring value. When No matter what they do to destroy the economy, people always recognize value and people always are willing to exchange value for value. If that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be a black market. A black market is actually a true value for value market. Now, there's nefarious things that get, you know, like, you know, really bad hardcore drugs and stuff like that. But there's always people that do work for cash and people that are willing to pay cash for work. You know, the underground economies may be better than the black market to describe that. And that's because you can't lie to the market. In the end, the market will establish itself. It's a basic libertarian principle. Let's go on to another one. Um, you're about to hear me get a little bit irritated here with somebody. So, uh, and it ain't the, ain't the person that wrote in. Um, and uh, just so you know, there might be a little bit of anger uh, about to come out. Disclaimer done. Dear Jack, do you have more suggestions for stealth permaculture? We like think your recommendation to substitute Japanese quail for chickens was brilliant. The reason we're asking is that our neighbors dislike our mandala garden and want us to replant our lawn in the backyard. <laughs> to emphasize their displeasure, they smashed fruit bushes, poisoned goldfish, burnt the fence, egged our siding, threw garbage, stole plants by the armload, and forced us to relinquish our two muscovy ducks. We did clean and tidy our garden on a daily basis, but it did boast too many, but it, and it did boast many flowers, but it was too different for our street. Obviously, the long-term solution is to move. However, we will not be able to move for two years. We want to use our remaining time to learn the ropes, permaculture before stay, starting a rural homestead. Very grateful for any stealth recommendations, especially to enhance garden security. Um, I'm going to give you one. Plant a whole crapload of nettles around the edges of your gardens and let them go grab onto that. But now I'm going to give you the actual solution. What you're describing here isn't a nosy neighbor, isn't a complaining neighbor. You're describing a vandal, a thief, and a criminal. And this needs to be met head on. The first thing you need to do, contact the police and file a police report on all of this shit and have them go over there and confront and say that you do wish to file charges for trespass, for vandalism, and for theft. Step two, get a lawyer and file a civil suit in addition to this for damages to your property to recover the financial loss that you've had. Step three, normally I would say to do this first, but in this situation, you do this, you do this third. Contact them directly. Let them know why you're taking this action and you're not going to take it anymore and that they need to remain off of your property in the future or they will face additional legal problems. 
Okay? That is the most legitimate way I can tell you to handle this, because I probably would have pulled the son of a bitch out of his house and beat his ass in his front yard. I mean, we're not talking about someone causing a problem here. We're talking about somebody vandalizing, stealing, destroying your property in violation of the law. Now, I say I would have done that. No, I would have contacted the authorities. I don't like to go to authorities first. But when you have criminal behavior, that's their flipping job. You know when I say support law enforcement? This is why. This is why. When criminal activity is conducted, right, this is not a victimless crime. This isn't the, well, I don't like the guy because he's out in his backyard smoking pot. You know, that's against the law, but I don't really care. As long as it doesn't, you know, interfere with my children or something like that. As long as he does it on his own property and out of my view, I don't care. There's a, there's no victim there. This person had their property damaged and stolen. These people need to, at minimum, be fined and at maximum, maybe, maybe spend a week in jail. Right? You know, these people aren't going to go to jail for 20 years or some shit like that for this. It's probably too late for much to be done. Right? And the Muscovy made us relinquish our Muscovy ducks. There's probably an ordinance that made you do that. Right? You probably complied because authority made you reply. Uh, you know, I, th th this needs to be handled. It's, this, it's a two-way street, right? There's no. I'm sure there's an ordinance that says you can't put poison in the pond of your your your, your uh, neighbor. I'm sure there's a, an ordinance that says you can't vandalize their property. I'm sure there's an ordinance that says you can't damage their property by stamping on it, and you can't steal. I'm sure there's laws for all of that up in Canada where you're at. Get the authorities involved in this one and put this person down. Put them on their ass, put them where they belong, and very politely explain to them that if you see them on your property ever again, you're going to see it as criminal trespass. Period. Unless they want to pull their head out of their ass and be a good neighbor and, and, and resolve the issue with you. Otherwise, at any time, that anything happens to any of your property, they will be getting a visit from the authorities and contacted by your attorney. And I would push the civil case in this, because the criminal case is probably ain't going to happen at this point. I would push the civil case very, very hard. And anytime the guy does, if the guy takes a pee and it leaks over to your side of the property, I would contact authorities and let them know there's a civil case pending and this person is again aggressed upon your property. I, I'm serious. I hate to. I hate to go to authorities. I like to solve problems between neighbors, but one face to face. But these people are assholes, and they're conducting themselves in a criminal manner. So it's time for a criminal system to be utilized to prevent that. If somebody broke in your house, stole your television set, what would you do? You know. <laughs> Would you, I'm not going to call the police because I don't do that. No, you, if somebody came in, somebody comes on your property and takes your plants or vandalize. If somebody broke in your house and spray painted your, 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 your wall in your living room, you would see it as vandalism. You've been, you've been victimized here, sir. You've been victimized. Don't be a victim here. Don't be a victim. At least make it difficult. I say the hell with stealth permaculture. Find all the laws, follow all the laws, go nuts with it within the laws and codes in your area. Put up some cameras and make sure that anytime that somebody comes into your backyard, they're being videotaped. Put up a little sign 
Little son, it says. The, the whole area is under video surveillance. Make sure your, your retarded neighbor can read it. And don't go down easy on this one. Fight it. You're going to be there two years. You do what you want to do. The hell with stealth. Stealth in situations like to get around ordinances for livestock. That's fine. That's code and law. This is a neighbor violating the law. Don't give a freaking inch. Real quick little one here that goes along with my little rant about the fairy tale of the debt ceiling and the nonsense and, and all at the beginning. This comes from Rich. Rich says, just ran across this quote and I thought you might like it. <laughs> Listen to this. The most dangerous man to any government is one that is able to think things out without regard to prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. Uh, that is from H.L. Mencken, who's a pretty astute thinker. And that's what I'd like you guys to think about today. And I'd like you to start using that one in your, uh, your repertoire, so to speak, as a filter. Uh, when you're hearing all these things in TV about this side of government and that side of government, let me read it to you one more time. The most dangerous man to any government is the one able to think things out without regard to prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. Thanks, Rich. So how about a little good news for a change? And I'm going to tell you some things after this one that I've heard a lot of people saying that I disagree with, and I'll tell you why. And I would have initially agreed with them. Um, but here's the good news. Uh, remember I told you last week about this little kid that peed in his front yard. He was three years old, and a cop um, wrote his mother a ticket for $2,500. Um, and I said that the chief should have chewed his ass from one end to the other, uh, starting at his left foot and ending at his right foot, and he should have had to walk around a few days to wait for his ass to grow back before he could ever sit down again, and then they should drop the charges and all that. Well, that happened, plus one more. Uh, instead of just chewing his ass, they fired him. Uh, that officer was fired, and the charges were all dropped. Here's the news report on it. Well, there's more fallout tonight after an officer writes a hefty ticket for a toddler's potty break. Piedmont police have fired the officer who ticketed the mom after her son urinated in their front yard. And tonight, that officer is fighting back. Ivana Johnson broke the story and joins us now with the very latest. Well, Amanda Kelly, the saga continues. After allegedly being harassed at their home by a Piedmont police officer, the Warden family got justice. While the $2,500 ticket was dropped, we told you that, the police chief personally apologized and the officer was disciplined. But the whole ordeal brought one family member to tears And it's not baby Dylan. Three-year-old Dylan's peeing in Piedmont earned him lots of attention. We had the Anderson Cooper Show, Good Morning America, Dr. Phil. And it didn't stop there. The $2,500 ticket was dismissed, but then it was laughed about. I have heard more jokes today about Piedmont. And, and it has just, and some of them have frankly been hilarious. Both the mayor and the police chief said the officer should have used better judgment. Tuesday, veteran officer Ken Qualls was suspended. Friday, he was fired. The family got word Monday. I can't say that I'm happy for that. You know, but I am, I'm happy that, um, it was looked into and, um, 
perhaps his judgment was in question. I don't know the particulars of the of the hearing. In fact, no one does. Both the mayor and the police chief refused to comment on camera, stating this was a personnel matter. And we did feel like he was, you know, out of line. Um, but we never intended to cost him his job. We couldn't get in contact with Officer Qualls, and although the ordeal has affected the entire family and put Piedmont on the national stage, Dylan isn't phased. But the pull-ups, well, they're another matter. On a lighter note, how's potty training going? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> The city manager fired the officer based on the police chief's recommendation, but it's not over. Qualls appealed the dismissal, so now the personnel board will have to review it. Kelly. All right. All right, so I think karma is real, and this is an example of the system actually working for a change, and of, of sensible heads in uh, the, the realm of the, the mayor and the police chief prevailing. And I'd like to say... To the police chief, who I was kind of tough on last week when I heard about this, because nothing had been done yet, thank you, sir, for doing your job. I appreciate you, and you seem like a fine, upstanding public servant. And to the mayor of Piedmont, thank you for also using your brain, ma'am. Uh, you seem like you did the right thing in this case. I don't really know anything about Piedmont anyway, other from Sunday, other than this. And from what I've seen here, the two of you did a good job. So thank you. Now, let me tell you my original thoughts. This was not something that warranted this guy being fired. Simply an ass chewing, a reprimand, and uh, an explanation not to do it again. But when I saw other people point that out in comments on the story and in different places, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I don't agree when somebody else says it. What, what's, what's, what's the conflict? Why do you, why do you feel that way? Why, why did you, you know, in your head it was that way, but when it came down to it, you support the termination of this officer. Um, because of a variety of things. First of all, the, the lack of judgment here is extreme. It is a stupid, dumb thing to do. And as a police chief, if this guy's my officer, I have to think to myself, what other dumbass thing is he going to do in the future? And if he did, and he's a veteran officer, so he's worked so hard. Well, let me tell you what veteran officer means to me. It means that you get less tolerance for stupid behavior than a rookie officer. If somebody did this, it was a year on the job. I'd look at their training and who was their, you know, who was in the oversight of them, and you know. But look, okay, you're a veteran officer. Let's not just look at the the part that that backs you. Okay, you've given a service and you're, you know, owed a certain amount for it. But you also have an expectation to not behave stupidly. And this was a stupid, stupid thing to do. That's that's number one. I don't want that guy with a gun and badge, able to exercise similar stupid behavior in far more serious situations. So that would be one reason for dismissal. But in of itself, would that be the case? I probably still wouldn't dismiss this officer out of hand. Just, you did this, you're gone. But apparently that's not what happened. They had a, uh, they had a hearing. They brought the officer in front of the mayor and the police chief and probably some IR people, uh, or IA people, internal affairs people, something like that, and they reviewed the situation. Then they asked the officer what he thought. Well, let's put it to you this way. If you got pulled in on this one and you're told, you know, officer, you did the wrong thing here, and that guy, after it's been explained to him, if he's continued to defend his behavior and say, I don't want to drop the charge, I think this needs to be done, now you've shown an even greater lack of judgment. So I'm going to bet that since they had a hearing, that this guy's responses were freaking dumb. Number three, 
I don't know for a fact, I'm speculating here, and I want to be clear about that, but a guy that's a veteran officer that does something this stupid, likely this wasn't the first time they had to deal with something stupid he did. That's number three. Number four, if you remember in the original report, this guy sat at the end of this street every day for hours upon hours. It's just possible that the police department and his supervisors weren't aware of the fact that he was sitting on his ass at the end of the road doing nothing, and this incident is not just about this incident, but poor, I don't know, again, I'm speculating, but if, you know, if you're sitting on the, on a street every day, you know, and you're, I mean, the same street every day, that's not, that's not traffic monitoring or whatever, and this is a rural road and all, and you know, if they went in, and like, you've been sitting here all the time, and they check the vehicle records and all, and figure out, you know, that that's where he's been, and you're not writing any tickets or anything, except this one, I mean, there's a performance issue there as well. So I think that in this situation, the right thing was done. The officer has the right to appeal. We'll see what will happen. But I'll tell you this. Um, any law enforcement organization that hires this fool now, you know what you're getting. There's better people. This guy is not qualified in my book to be running you know, a job as a security person at a mall with a clipboard and a radio. That's probably where he'll end up with it as a chip on his shoulder. But this guy needs to be in a position where he doesn't get to exercise authority over anybody else, uh, especially in the infringement upon their liberty or every any kind of power trip. This guy needs to be packing boxes or loading trucks or pumping gas. Um, I know it seems harsh, but let me put it to you into this perspective. When a person becomes a law enforcement officer, They take an oath to serve and protect and to follow the constitution of their of their their state, their country, to, to always look after the rights of the individual. To be there is a line between those that attack and those that are victimized. That's their job. And with that job comes an incredible amount of authority to be able to do things like check somebody's background. Under certain circumstances, go deeply into what, who is this person? What are they doing? What, why are they here? Right? To get a warrant and then go in and search their private possessions. To at any time determine that I need to place you in handcuffs, even if I'm not placing you for your own safety, as they put it. To put you in a car, to take you away to jail. To often hold a person without actually filing charges under something called material witness. There's an entire group of things that a person with that badge is able to do and use force to impose upon others. And when such a lack of judgment is demonstrated, is the feeling that you need to cite a, a, a woman because her kid peed in the front yard. Not chronically, not every day, something stupid that a kid did. You do not need to be entrusted with that authority. And again, I'm calling on all law enforcement officers. You need to be the police of the police. When you see one of your fellow officers doing something stupid like this, you need to take them to the woodshed in a heavy-handed way. This hurts all good cops. This hurts all good people in law enforcement when somebody acts this way. You guys, like I said last time when I talked about this, you need to understand that your, your, your brotherhood When someone, when someone does this, when someone does anything, I'm not even going to give you ideas of what I'm talking about because I was about to say a practice that some law enforcement officers have done. But if they do anything that violates their oath, they violated your brotherhood. They're not worthy of your protection and your defense anymore. 
That needs to be what all of y'all think. And if you did that, law enforcement in this country would have a much better time dealing with the general public. You need to be worried about the criminal. And the criminal sometimes is in your uniform. And when he's there, you need to be the first one to step on his ass. Harder than you would a citizen, a civilian, however you want to put it. Because that citizen, that civilian, doesn't have that authority. That authority comes, you know, authority comes with responsibility. Power comes with responsibility. And you guys need to take it very seriously when you detain anybody for any length of time or ingress on anybody's liberty in any way. Very, very seriously. And when it's done improperly, please stand up to your fellow officers and make it right. All right, guys, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to finish up today with talking about a few things, why we're doing some things and some things that are coming and what we can expect as, as they show up. Uh, number one, I want to let you guys know on the Revolution is U 2.0 video, with everything that's been going on, it's just something I haven't finished up yet. It'll definitely be out soon. I'm sorry for those of you that have been waiting to see it, um, but these are all the pictures that were sent to me in the build-up to episode 1000. That video will be out soon. Just want to give you a quick update there. Um, next thing I wanted to let you guys know is we have a fabulous show scheduled with Stephen Harris coming in December. I'm building battery backup systems for your home and for your vehicle, uh, where they can be recharged by solar, by your vehicle, by grid charging. And by the time that show's over, you'll be able to do just about anything that you can think of uh, when it comes to creating battery backup power systems. It's going to be uh, really, really awesome, and uh, including how to select the battery for your needs based on a cost-needs basis uh, analysis. So um, this is uh, going to be a really great show that's coming up. He's going to have some videos for sale that basically will take the show and put into pictures everything that he gives away for free on the show and makes it mechanical. And I would just want to kind of, you know, promote this for him by saying that, you know, uh, he's going to give you everything you need to know on the show for free in audio. Uh, but the work and the investment that he's made in this challenge has been immense because he's had to buy everything, build everything, test it out, prove it out, put it all together. And he's really excited about it. And I think that this is going to be one of the best episodes ever And I want to kind of you know, prompt you for the, you know, get you ready for that one. And I want you to also think about the fact that mobile power, mobile power is so awesome to be able to have your car or your truck and everywhere you go have power with it. Um, so that's a big thing that's coming. And I want you to think about how much that could have helped a lot of people in the Northeast or helped people that wanted to act, act as responders. Um, there are some things that we're going to deal with over the next couple of years that Honestly, none of us really know what they're going to be like, but we know that they're going to be different than everything we've ever dealt with before and the same. And in every instance that that happens, what happens is people end up without, without the ability to do or get certain things done. And uh, those that can get things done have a real advantage. So um, that's why I gave Stephen this project, and I think it's going to be an awesome, awesome show. I'm very excited about it. Um, there was a system that I wanted to build in my truck that I could have done like 98% to where he's taken it. The 2% is the X factor. The 2% is the X factor that makes it an optimized system, and that's why I, I've held up my own project uh, to, to get that done. Next, I want to talk to you guys about 13 skills. I sent kind of a punch list to the programmer today. The site, for all intents and purposes, works. 
Um, I wouldn't go over there if you figured out the domain yet and join it yet because you'll probably get purged when we launch it officially. But I can't see why the site won't be up in another week. I know I keep saying that. Um, but this is going to be an incredible site uh, for something that we put together on a whim. And I am still looking for advertisers for that site. I've got a couple of you guys that said you're interested. Um, I've sent you information back. I've got a couple of advertisers that have already stepped up and provide their, their banners. But I have about 10 more slots for advertising on that site. It's 65 bucks a month. Uh, and that's a guaranteed rate all the way through 2013. And you won't have to start paying until January 1st when the, the site goes not in a beta launch but a hard launch. Uh, and you will run your advertising out throughout the rest of the year for free. So a lot of you guys with smaller companies and things like that that have wanted a spot on TSP, um, it's available. It would be best if what you do somehow uh, ties into the skills concept. So, uh, you know, if it's something with camping gear or something like that, that would be fine. But anything that's kind of a craft-oriented thing or an instructional thing would really be great. Also want to give you an update on the, the survival podcast DRT, the disaster response team. Uh, we have a team now, uh, that we're calling Team Blackjack because the original number of volunteers was 21. Uh, they have formulated uh, a really great outline how to set up the 501c3. Uh, not-for-profit organization, uh, set up the framework for a board of directors that will be voting members of the board. They've had their first uh, full-on conference call to set the agenda. They have a timeline in place, and we are so blessed. I'm not telling you who any of these people are yet. Some of them may never want to step out of the shadows, uh, but we have a group of people that are really professional, that have been doing disaster response anywhere from some of these guys, you know, four or five years to some of these guys, 20, 30 year veteran responders. Uh, they know how to work in the system. They know how to do it the right way. And they are actively building a world class organization, uh, by starting out at the top and making sure that before we start telling other people what to do, we know what they're doing themselves. I want everybody out there to know that when you find out who these people are, when whatever group of them want to be publicly recognized, the, the, the thanks for the work and the dedication to them is enormous. I am doing very little. I am being absolutely counter to myself. I like to control things. I like to put my hands on things. I like to set things up. I like to, 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 to get in and, and mess around with stuff. I didn't even participate in their conference call this weekend. Because I know that I have a team of pros, and I am not a pro in that world. And I need to stay the hell out of the way. And they get 100% of the credit for what's built. 100% of it. I am here to be the public relations uh, arm of the DRT, and to promote it, and to help you guys get in touch with them when they're ready to start taking volunteers. Uh, and they give you the certification process that you have to go through and things like that. And I am here to be with you in the field, when we're responding to disasters right next to you, uh, out there, not at the, t the top tier, because that's not my role in this. Uh, but it is coming, and if you knew the level of professionalism, the level of dedication, and the level of work that these gentlemen have taken on their shoulders so quickly, so fastly, so fast and so effectively, uh, I think you would be blown away. And we're looking at having some level of like, you know, field muster or something like that early in 2013. It's going to be really cool. Next up, Jeff Lawton thing at the Spearco new homestead. Um, I have room for probably 12. I have had probably 40 or 50 people say put me on the list. 
I'm going to take people in the order that they sent them in, which means if you sent it in recently, it doesn't look good. I talked about this with my wife. We decided that 12 is the head count we can handle. And we are going to do this to try to make it fair. I'm going to take the first 10 people and the order that they were received. I'm going to take two more seats, and I'm going to basically take everybody that said put me on the list and raffle the other two. They're not free when I say raffle. It's like drawing a, a I don't know, a, a, a moose tag in Maine. You know, you go in a raffle. If you win, you still have to pay for your tag. So you still have to pay for your seat. But I think it's only fair that maybe we take a couple of these seats and, and make it more democratic in the way that they're given away. That way I'm honoring the commitment to the first 10. I've made two more available, and it's the only fair way I can do this. I've also gotten probably two dozen or more emails. I have a place to. I want Jeff to come do a workshop at my site. I understand the sentiment. Jeff is going to be in California for over a week before he comes to Texas. I will talk to him, but there is no way. I mean, I have enough people asking for this now that Jeff Lawton could stay in the United States for the entire year of 2013. He has a life. He has other things to do. I'm not getting on anybody. I'm not kind of picking on anybody. But my gut is that what Jeff is going to most want to do after running two workshops is go home. And I, I, I'm just saying that because I'm not individually able to respond to everybody. I know everybody would love to have Jeff Lawton come to their place and do something. And it may be that we, you know, look at it and pick one other workshop because there's more demand. But again, this is about a man who spends his entire life traveling around the world doing this stuff. And, and, and honestly, I can tell sometimes he just wants to be home. So I'm not going to put any pressure there. I'll just simply say there's some other people. If you did something, what would you be interested in doing additionally and see if he has an interest in doing that? I'm telling you right now, the guy's day rate is $1,250 a day. So whatever you're running has to be able to either be funded by the, the event itself uh, or you're going to have to fund it out of pocket. He ain't cheap because he's worth the price. So I wanted to say that. Um, I had a lot of people saying, are you going to video it? Are you going to do this? I have somebody that got in touch with me. I need to get in touch with this week about doing a, a documenting it with, with video and all very, very uh, intensively. I don't know what level we would do it at. I don't know if I would give the rights to the video to Jeff in exchange for some level of, uh, of compensation or if I would do it just directly or what have you. Um, but what I've heard a lot of people saying is, why don't you do a Kickstarter and put together a whole series of like the whole series on video? And the people that participate in the Kickstarter get, you know, either part of it or all of it or a discount on it or something like that. And that would help fund it and it would help fund the production and all of that. I'm thinking about doing that because there is so much demand. Um, you know, just for people that want to come, I actually just paused the recording and I went into the, the folder and there's 66 people saying, I'll come. I want, I want to be on the list. I want to come. I'll pay for the, the, uh, the event. Uh, and that's people that can actually physically come and spend a week on site. So I, I have to believe that the interest is huge for this. And, you know, I'd like you guys' thoughts. When I do something and I ask the community for money, I take it very, very seriously. If we did this, there would be a very specific, you know, you know, level one, you're just helping. If you go up to level two, maybe you get one of the DVDs, you know. I, I, and I, I don't even know what it would be yet. I would have to work all that out and get that done relatively quickly to be able to do it. But I do think that one of the big holes in permaculture right now is temperate climate. 
you know. Um, everything's bananas and, and stuff like that and rainforests and all. And I think this would be an opportunity to really take uh, a climate that's difficult. And if you could make it work in Texas, you could make it work anywhere in the United States because I'm not far enough south to do citrus and stuff like that, but I'm too far south to do certain fruits and things like that. So uh, I think this would be a great project to fully document. I am going to talk to this individual that seems like he does this type of thing for a living, and I'm going to see if it works out. But one way or another, there will be opportunities beyond the Lawton workshop itself. I'm thinking about running every other week for a couple months uh, after the big Lawton thing, small weekenders, you know, with six people, ten people or less, uh, to come out and walk the whole thing, learn everything, and maybe continue to add to the design a as we go. Um, it is not my intention to turn my homesteads thing into a for-profit school in the traditional sense. I don't want it to become a new business unit. I want anything that I run out there to be self-funding and not much more. So in other words, if people come out, we work on a skill set, we learn a thing, I have to bring in materials, that the cost would just basically put everything back to par at the end. No profit, no loss, no nothing because it's not designed to be my business. It's designed to be something additional, and I want to make it as accessible as possible to people that want to come and learn things like livestock husbandry and earthworks and permaculture and, and skill sets and how to do this type, type of thing on a smaller property. So that's coming. And the reason I ended with all this today is, one, I had just a whole crap load of stuff to kind of catch you up to speed on, but two to show you how optimistic I am about our future in spite of how bad I know they're going to screw everything up. In the end, it's going to be up to us to pick each other up. There is what can only be described as a transition movement occurring right now where people are beginning to realize that no one's going to do it for them. And there's the whole I know there's the whole segment of society that will go to hell in a handbasket. Circle of freaking concern. Okay, You don't control those people. You don't affect those people. All you can do is build your own life. Well, they're a threat to us when this all... Yes. And the more fortified we are as a community, and the more we can do, and the more we can teach, and the more we can actually help those people, the more secure we are. The more we can demonstrate and do before it's really needed, the more of it will be done before you reach a point where it's the only choice. This is where I'm going with this. I am not going to sit around and live in fear, and I don't want you to. I'm not going to sit around and worry about what if, and I don't want you to. But what if the government does this? We'll cross the bridges as we come to them. That's how you deal with disasters. We have a plan for resiliency and redundancy, and we take care of ourselves, and we build up the most responsible behavior we can in our own lives, in our own communities, and that's all that we can do. And I would say this to you guys, and some of you are going to get bent over it as I conclude today. If you're going to be a libertarian... You have a responsibility to be prepared. You have you cannot say we don't need the government and then not be prepared to not have the government. And that includes all things, including people to your left and right. I know some of you don't like that. Just the way I feel, one man's opinion. On that note, uh, another one more announcement today before I wrap up. 
the 2013 Liberty Forum in New Hampshire, part of the Free State Project. I will again be speaking there uh, as, a, as a keynote speaker and doing some additional sessions on things like putting together a bug out bag. That's going to be really cool. Uh, I'm talking to Free State right now about doing something where one of you guys can win a free VIP pass, uh, where you, you get everything you possibly can get as, as, as a conference attendee, um, and doing something kind of charitable, like you'll donate to a charity of your choice or a list of charities, and everybody gets entered and one person gets drawn out of that to do some good with it. But I'm going to be the 2013 Liberty Forum. Can't wait to see many of you guys there. One of the best experiences of 2012 was going to that event. Can't wait to see some of you guys there again. I'll put a link in today's show notes about the 2013 Liberty Forum. More information about my appearance will be coming soon, but I have confirmed and, and booked that with the, the folks at Free State. And uh, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.